Thank you so much, Sarah. Well, once again, I want to welcome you all this evening as we gather to focus uh, and remember, set our hearts upon the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucifixion was one of the most brutal and barbaric forms of capital punishment that the world has ever known. In fact, the English word excruciating originates from the practice of crucifixion because indeed it epitomized pain. Yet as we fix our attention and our hearts on the crucifixion of Jesus, this, on the cross, this notorious symbol of pain, in doing so we actually find and experience tremendous comfort. Right? That's the paradox. You look at the symbol that epitomizes pain. You set your mind and heart on, on what happened there, but as you do, it's actually how you experience deep, deep comfort. And so I'd like to share from our text three specific ways in which we are comforted by the cross. So first, there is comfort for those who are mocked. Comfort for those who are mocked. Beginning in verse 16, we witness Jesus suffering incessant mockery. Just a reminder, as our sister just read, the Roman soldiers mockingly put a cloak on him and crown of thorns, chanting, Hail, King of the Jews, instead of Hail, Caesar. He was nothing but a joke to them. As Jesus hung from the cross, on a very prominent and public hill called Golgotha, or in the Latin, Calvary. We read in verses 29 to 30, it says, those who passed by this very public area, there was people coming um, through there, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Verse 31 the chief priests and scribes mocked him, saying to one another, look, he saved himself, he saved others, and he cannot even save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And then verse 32, it says, even those, the criminals with him, also reviled him. Can you imagine, just to put this in a modern context, can you imagine someone on their deathbed in a hospital, lying there and dying in excruciating pain, moaning in pain, and then one by one, people come into the hospital room one at a time and just unload insults, sarcastically mocking this person as they're dying and on top of all that, the insults that are being hurled at this person are ungrounded and untrue. They don't even deserve it. Well, that's what Jesus suffered. You know, there are many layers of pain that Jesus endured. And we should not leave out or forget the pain of mockery. Jesus being God. He's literally the one who formed the human mouth, who gave human beings the ability to speak and form words. And now the word who became flesh is experiencing verbal abuse 
from the very mouths he created. Words weaponized to cut down the one whose glory is higher than the heavens. But the time would come. The time would come, Sunday morning to be exact, when Jesus would be vindicated. You see, his resurrection proved he was the Messiah. That he was, in fact, not just the king of the Jews, but he was the king of kings, king over all creation. That he, in fact, did have the power to save, but in dying, he saved us not by force and violence, but he saved us by subjecting himself to force and violence. He was mocked by the people because he didn't seem like a Messiah. He didn't seem like a king. He didn't fit their expectations and ideas. Compared to their ideals, Jesus was an absolute joke. But what ultimately matters is not what the mockers thought or what the mockers said was true. What ultimately matters is what's actually true. And Jesus proved that what he says, his word, is actually true. And friends, therein lies our comfort. Because not only is what Jesus says, um, is what Jesus says about himself true and what ultimately matters, what Jesus says about you is what's true and what ultimately matters. I'm sure most of us are familiar with that well-known kid's rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And kids recite this, kind of conveying and expressing this idea that verbal mockery doesn't really affect me can't really hurt me and they say it probably as a self-defense mechanism because you and I know the older you get you realize how untrue that rhyme is I came across a counter poem entitled sticks and stones by Ruby Redford and I think this poem more accurately expresses the impact of words of things that have been said to you and I. Sticks and stones may break, my, may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Stones and sticks break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Slant and curved, the word sword falls. It pierces and sticks inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar on mind and heart that's tender. Cuts and bruises have not healed. It's words that I remember. At 44 years of age, maybe this is just me, but I'm guessing it's not. Do you know I can recall every single racist incident in my life? 
Every single one of them. Things said to me, things said to my father in front of me. I remember every single one. And the image that comes to my mind is like sometimes when people, uh, there are shooting victims, the bullet gets lodged and stays inside. And so, you know, the skin heals up and covers over that, but that bullet is in there. And that's what it feels like. Yes, the skin's covered over, but I still feel it in there. Perhaps for some of us, degrading words said by your parents about your looks, your appearance, your weight, about your achievements or lack of, about your duties as a son or daughter and your performance of those duties. Perhaps these words are ghosts that still haunt us. And we run so very hard to prove them wrong, to prove these things untrue, but oftentimes we run away unsuccessfully and the ghosts keep chasing us well into adulthood. When it comes to our moral failure, failures of our faith and spiritual practice, our enemy, Satan, otherwise known as the accuser, oh, he loves to mock us. He whispers words of condemnation into our ears that we are worthless, that we are unworthy of love, that if anybody knew the real you and saw the real things you do behind closed doors, that they would surely be disgusted with us and reject us. That we are not worthy to be loved and that we are hopeless that we will never change, that we are simply a slave to our addictions, that we've apologized a thousand times over, we've repented a thousand times over, but nothing's changing. And so we are hopeless, says the accuser. Just give up. And sadly, you and I often agree. We become our own worst enemy, and sometimes you become your own worst mocker. That in spite of what other people try to tell you and in the ways they try to encourage you, you end up believing your own voice more than anyone else's, even God's. If you can identify with any of that, I want to encourage you to look to the cross of Jesus Christ again tonight. Or perhaps for some of you for the first time. Because what he says of you What he says of you is what is actually true and is what actually matters. The cross declares you are his treasured possession and that you meant so much to Jesus that he was willing to endure unspeakable pain so that he could have you. That's how much he wanted you. Your worth is in him and grounded in his achievements, not yours. There's nothing more you have to prove to anyone, including yourself. 
Jesus chases those ghosts away. On the cross, Jesus made a way for you to be in his eternal kingdom forever. And so when people say that you don't belong in this country, and those words sink down deep and you begin to believe them, making you feel like you don't really have a true home, remember, because of the cross, you have a far better country that awaits you. An eternal home in the eternal city. Jesus does in fact see you for who you really are. All of our failures, the depths of our sin, who we are when we think no one's watching. He sees it all. And he's also aware of the resulting guilt and shame that you feel. And Jesus says, after seeing it all, give it to me. Give it to me. That's what he did upon the cross. He bore the punishment. He took our shame. He took our guilt. The punishment we rightfully deserve so that all who trust in him, truly there's no more condemnation. He bowed his head, humiliated, so that you would lift your head as a son and daughter of the king, sharing his glory. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The power of sin upon the cross was broken. You are not hopeless. You do have the power to change. You are not a loser. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. And by the amazing, redeeming power of Christ, even your failures, he can turn and use for your good. And that's why you're more than a conqueror. Because conquerors can't afford to lose. They can't afford to fail. But you're more than a conqueror because even your failures will be used to propel you forward by his power and in his likeness. These beautiful gospel truths of what Jesus says, of what Jesus says is true, is true of you, brings tremendous comfort. It brings healing to those wounds of words we've received through decades. So instead of turning over in your heart, in your mind and in your heart, turning over those wounding words that were once said to you, because we can do that. We can start to dwell on those lodged bullets. We can start to, to see those ghosts and we can start to just dwell on those things and turn our minds and hearts over on those things. But instead of that, set your mind and heart. Focus on not those wounding words. Instead, focus on what his wounds say about you. Focus on what his wounds say about you. What he says is true of you, for truly his blood speaks a better word. 
Yet this world will often mock us for believing those very truths that I talked about. But even in this, there is comfort to be found as we recall again the very words of Jesus who said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Wounds received for the sake of Christ serve as credits to your account of heavenly joy. And that's the comfort found as we look to the cross for those who are being mocked. Second, as we look to the cross, we find comfort in darkness. Comfort in darkness. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon, basically, to 3 p.m., which is typically the brightest time of day, a supernatural because people have tried to explain this away. Maybe it was an eclipse. No eclipse lasts three hours. This is a supernatural darkness that fell over the land, and in this, God is making a very purposeful statement. Because you see, in the scriptures, when we look in the Bible, darkness serves as a sign of judgment. We think of the Exodus, the ninth plague. Darkness covered the entire land of Egypt, signaling Judgment is coming. Judgment had fallen. The prophets, when speaking of God's coming judgment, spoke of the darkness that would come. Isaiah 13.10, Jeremiah 15.9, Amos 8 chapter or verse 9. When Jesus spoke of hell, he referred to it as a place of outer darkness. In the Old Testament, the famous benediction that the priests would give, we find it in Numbers 6, 24 and 26. It'll sound familiar because we still use this benediction today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, the state of blessedness is equated with God's face shining upon you. Which means to be cursed by God is to have the light of his countenance, the light of his face, turn away from you. That's darkness. Darkness fell upon Jesus literally in the form of light the absence of light, but it also signified that the judgment of God had fallen upon Jesus. Not for his sin, for he had none, but for ours. And he cries out, quoting directly from Psalm 22, a psalm written by David, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of a righteous sufferer. Meaning, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know why this is happening to me. And it's expressing this feeling of being abandoned by God. Well, the fact is, you and I, we deserved to be abandoned to the place of utter darkness 
and outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for our rebellion and rejection of God. But instead, what we remember this evening is that Jesus willingly chose to be abandoned and absorb that wrath in our place. More than the flogging, more than the crown of thorns, more than the nails, that was the deepest pain experienced by Jesus. And he willingly did it so that all who trust in him would never have to experience that pain themselves. The pain of God forever turning his face from you and being cast into cosmic, utter, eternal darkness. And so once again, may this truth bring tremendous comfort, especially for those of you who are going through really difficult things right now. And I know there are many of you. You know, every staff meeting, we do our best to pray for different needs in our church, and there's just so many of you going through really overwhelmingly painful things right now. We are weeping with you. But I want to encourage you in this way. I want to remind you that because Jesus was abandoned in darkness, you can be sure you will never be abandoned in your times of deepest darkness. He has not abandoned you, though it may feel that way. You know, we often quote from C.S. Lewis here at Renewal, and he wrote a a darker, more somber book called A Grief Observed, and he wrote it after the death of his wife. And he's very raw and honest in it. As he wrestles with his own doubts, as he wrestles with feeling abandoned by God, and this is what he writes. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights on in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in our time of trouble? Do you hear it? In effect, C.S. Lewis 
this giant of faith that so many of us look up to and have learned from, even he hit this moment of crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know how Psalm 22 ends? It ends with hope. Verse 24 of Psalm 22. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You see, for those who have trusted Jesus, in your moments and seasons of deepest darkness, you can be sure without a doubt that he has not despised you, forsaken you, abhorred you. Jesus already experienced all that. He was despised and abhorred for us upon the cross. And yes, though God may be silent, he has heard. Though it feels like the door has slammed and been bolted shut twice over, we look to the cross And in his dying breath, that curtain that separated people from the very presence of God was torn in half. This is no cheap Ikea $3 curtain. Some say it was as thick as a phone book. Ripped in half, which makes clear God has not shut you out. He has not cut you off. You've been brought all the way into his love, into his very presence, into his very heart. And he will never, ever forsake or abandon you. Furthermore, the cross of Jesus assures us he empathizes with your sorrow. He is well acquainted with the depths of darkness for he himself said, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus said that. He knows what deep, deep depression is. He gets it. He empathizes with you in it. But not only is that comforting, the greater comfort is in this. One day, because he is, through subjecting himself to darkness, he defeated the darkness, the light of the world, which means one day it is guaranteed your darkness will lift. I pray that it's tomorrow. I pray that it's next week. But even if it takes years, decades, You can be assured, even if it lasts the rest of your life, that you will open your eyes again after death and all that darkness will finally be gone. Both the darkness within us that causes sorrow, but also the darkness out there that we are daily reminded of in current events. 
will all be gone. And that is the comfort we find in darkness. Lastly, third and last, comfort for the unlikely. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him, Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now think about this. This was a Roman soldier. And not just any soldier, this is an officer who actually supervised. He was overseeing the entire crucifixion. He was there approving it all. And yet, as he personally witnesses Jesus' death, his words during his death, his actions during his death, he came to the point where this man confessed with his own lips the divinity of Jesus Christ Truly, this man was the Son of God. Verses 42 to 43, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. You know who that council is? It's the Sanhedrin. The same council that unjustly tried Jesus spewed lies to put him to death. He was a member of that council. And he asks for permission to give Jesus a proper burial in his own tomb, his own privately owned tomb. Oftentimes the victims of crucifixion, they would actually just leave their bodies up there to send a... A horrifying message to everyone watching. Don't ever oppose the Roman Empire. And they would literally just rot out and decay and animals would come and start pecking at them and whatnot. And and Joseph says, no, let me take the body of Jesus and properly bury him. And you see, he was taking a humongous risk in doing so. Because by going to Pilate and saying, I want to give Jesus a proper burial, what you're basically expressing is, I'm favorable towards this guy. The very guy who was just put to death as an insurrectionist for a treasonous person, uh, I kind of like him. Do you see the risk involved in that? But what we find out is this man was earnestly seeking the kingdom of God. And the reason why he asks for the body of Jesus is because it's clear. He had seen something in Jesus that drew his heart to Jesus. And as a matter of fact, the other gospel writers tell us he had secretly become a disciple of Jesus and that he actually opposed the decision of the council to send Jesus to his death. So think about this. A Roman centurion directly involved in Jesus' crucifixion A member of the Sanhedrin, the very group that lied to kill Jesus, who Jesus often sparred with, those religious leaders, he belonged to that group. These two individuals at first glance are very unlikely candidates to put their trust in Jesus, to acknowledge the truth of Jesus, and yet that's exactly what happened. And so here's the closing thought I want to leave us with tonight. May the centurion 
and Joseph of Arimathea, rekindle your faith. And what I mean by that is, your faith in the power of Jesus to save those we consider highly unlikely to ever come to faith. Find comfort in the fact that what may seem impossible in the eyes of man is possible in the eyes of God. Many of us have unbelieving friends and family members. And perhaps by their actions, their lifestyle, their words, maybe they've outright said, I will never be a Christian. And because of that, you've lost faith. And because of that, your heart is filled with fear and discouragement. Find comfort in the two, these two, two of the most unlikeliest folks <laughs> to turn to Christ in the circumstances they were in, and yet they did. Don't ever stop praying. My grandfather came to faith after, li as, after living as a pretty much nominal Buddhist. Came to faith 84-some years old. Never stop praying, for nothing is impossible with God. And perhaps for some of you here tonight, or tuning in, you consider yourself very unlikely to become a Christian. But perhaps some of that is due to a false understanding of what it means to be a Christian. A common misunderstanding in a lot of people's minds is like they feel like they've done too much, too much wrong. They've disqualified themselves from being acceptable to God. Too many ways in which I've done shameful things. And so they feel disqualified. On the, on the other hand, there are those who just worry about, can I do enough to qualify? I mean, it just seems like there's so much involved. You've got to do all these things and follow all these rules. And I don't know if I could ever qualify for that. I don't ever have, know if I could ever be good enough. I look at people when I come to church and they all seem so put together. And I don't know if that could ever be me. And let me just really quickly say, it looks that way, but they're not. I'm not. We are not as put together as you think we are. The message of Christianity, the truth of the gospel, is that no one, no one could ever do enough to make themselves qualified to be loved and accepted by God. And to think that you can is actually disqualifying because that's a heart of pride. That's a heart that says, I don't need a savior. I'll be my own savior. To think you can qualify yourself is actually what disqualifies you. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came precisely because we could never do anything. We could never do enough to qualify ourselves. He lived the life we were meant to live, but miserably failed to live. A life of love and obedience to the Father and love for neighbor. He did it perfectly in our place. And all who trust in him alone. You need to understand that no amount of failure, no amount of sin, no matter whatever you may have done, nothing, if you put your trust in Christ, nothing can disqualify you from his love because Christ 
already died and was condemned as the disqualified one in your place. For those who trust in Jesus, nothing you do can make God love you any more than he already does if you are in Jesus. And nothing you do can make God love you any less than he already does if you are in Jesus. Because in Jesus, you are perfectly loved. And you can't add or subtract from perfection. That's what makes it perfect. And I pray that if that's you tonight here or tuning in, that you would come to know his perfect love that is freely offered, freely offered to you, so that you would experience the love that you were made for. We were created to live in that love. For as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Let's bow our heads together. As we close this time out, I just want to give you a moment to just reflect, simply reflect on these particular comforts that we find in the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did and accomplished. Whether it be the wounds of words that have stuck with you as ghosts, as bullets lodged in you. Set your heart and mind on what Christ says is true of you, not what others say, Not what you say is true of you. Set your mind and heart on what Christ has said is true of you because it's what he says that is ultimately true and it's the only word that ultimately matters. Perhaps for some of us, you're in that season of darkness. Would you hear his assurance to you tonight that though he may be silent, he has not cast you off. And the fact is, oftentimes he uses the deepest darkness and darkest seasons in our lives. And I can attest to this from personal experience. That he often uses the deepest and darkest seasons of your life. Not to push you away, but to do the very opposite. To bring you closer into him. And one day that darkness will lift forever. And finally, whether you feel like the unlikely one or you know someone who seems unlikely, would you pray that they would call upon Jesus? Or if that's you, would you call upon Jesus? And if you do so, tell a friend. Pastors will be around, sticking around afterward. Let one of us know. Let me know. I'd love to be able to walk with you in that if you have further questions please don't just walk out of here. It's the most important thing, the most important topic, the most important decision you will ever make. So I'll just give you a few moments to reflect on these truths before the Lord before we sing our final song in closing.